Well, Jane, that was incredibly flattering. I'm not sure you introduced Mikhail, but... Um, <laughs> to Jesus. Right. Um, well, it, it has been such a privilege to be involved in this project um, from the sidelines as a sort of curatorial sounding board, um, essayist, obviously. Uh, Mikhail and I have known each other for probably around eight years or so. Uh, I have long admired his work. I first saw his work um, at MoMA. He was acquired by MoMA at the tender age of 26, around that, 27. Um, absolutely remarkable body of work uh, called Divya Hooker. Uh, I hope my Afrikaans isn't too <laughs> awful. Um, but yeah, and it, it, uh, it really, really stayed with me. So um, this is the first opportunity we've had to work together. And uh, the project's been long in gestation, about three or four years. Um, it's been so interesting to see this process firsthand because it's, I think it's extended Mikhail's practice in a number of different ways. He, when I first became acquainted with his work, he was a documentary photographer working very much in the vein of um, senior South African artists like David Goldblatt, whom he, I know he much admires. Uh, and this work is a completely different kettle of fish. It's his first foray into fiction, um, but in many ways it, uh, it deals with a lot of issues that were coming up for him in his kind of documentary photography work, uh, ideas around seeing representation, um, challenging his own subjectivity and the objectivity, claims of objectivity of, of documentary photography. Um, and so in, in this amazing commission project, why what we have is a very kind of conceptually rich, multi-layered and complex work, uh, which really rewards um, kind of in-depth viewing, I guess I'd say, and, and we'll need some unpacking today. Um, so without further ado, I guess we should start at the beginning. And Mikhail, I wonder if you could just talk about how your initial ideas for the structure of why um, came about and, and from your conversations with Jean. Sure. Um, thank you for the introduction and thank you so much. Nina's been a big part of the project throughout of it and um, having known her for many years, it really was a great pleasure to eventually find a, 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 the right context to work with you, so thank you. Um, the project started, um, yeah, um, I'd also known Jean um, and, and Jean and Brian for quite some time. Um, and uh, I think we had yeah, been kind of dancing around the idea of doing a project together and it took some time to find the right time. Um, but Jean brought me out here, um, must have been almost three years ago. Um, and uh, that was really the kind of starting point of this version of the project. Um, in preparation for um, coming here, I read Robert Hughes's um, book, The Fatal Shore, which is obviously the key text um, uh, on Australian history, Australian colonial history. Um, and there was one particular uh, chapter in that book called The Geographic Unconscious, which really struck me, where Hughes um, very brilliantly speaks about how the English had to imagine the Australian landscape as this upside down, um, beastly, other, strange um, landscape that um, was necessary for that kind of projection to be made in order to use England initially, uh, sorry, to use Australia initially only as a kind of dumping ground for, for their penal colony. Um, and obviously then it grew into a lot more than that, the relationship to the landscape here, but that just struck me as such a strong, uh, antidote or kind of um, polar opposite to how a lot of um, my fellow South Africans um, see Australia and the Australian landscape. Um, I'm, I'm generalizing terribly, but one gets the sense that a lot of middle-class white South Africans like myself um, see Australia as this kind of idyllic place, which has got the same similar landscape, similar culture and relationship to leisure in the landscape as... Um, South Africa, but without all the quote-unquote problems. Um, and, um, of course, a lot of uh, uh, white South Africans do move here, um, and uh, you get the sense with a lot of that that it is, um, in, in some ways, to kind of 
get away from those problems. And I say I'm generalizing terribly because I've got very good friends here who have moved to Australia from South Africa for very, very different reasons, professional reasons and political reasons. And Jean and Brian, of course, are, are a great example of that. So, but as a, as a kind of general background, that kind of that, that um, stark difference in how the landscape the Australian landscape was imagined was really the starting point and that led me to then literally plot drawing on a map the triangle between England, Australia and South Africa and, the, and looking at the projections onto the landscape along the outside of that triangle and then reading and thinking also about the other side which is the English colonial projections onto the South African landscape. And and so you said, as you uh, as you just said, you have a kind of triangular structure that was the framework for this project. Um, and from that point, you talked about sort of uh, elevating the centre of it to create an imaginary space um, where this new fictional story could emerge that would bring these three disparate colonial experiences together, and which would also admit three different temporalities. Um, the sort of past I, I don't know how many of you have, have seen the film and seen the film from start to finish but um, there are three characters uh, James Lethbridge, an 1820 settler um, to the Eastern Cape of South Africa and then there's Craig Hare who is a, a present day South African um, and then there is the, the character of Feo who is a futuristic character um, potentially genderless, um, potentially kind of post-figurative or without a physical body where a consciousness has evolved to the point where the physical body is unnecessary. And these are the three characters who kind of... Um, and the film, um, their three narratives sort of interweave and interlock in different ways. And uh, they're also... Each, each character dominates a different screen within the installation... But in the process, it is, as Mikhail says, a film in three parts. And in the process of watching the, the whole work from start to finish, the characters shift screens. And so they're sort of multiply located in various kind of concrete and spectral forms across all three screens. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about how you arrived at these three characterizations of Lethbridge, Hare and Feo what they stood for and what they were searching for. Sure. So um, it kind of developed, like Nina was saying, it, it, with this triangle, which, you know, this very basic shape. But then I started reading and thinking about impossible triangles and Penrose triangles and... Um, looking deep at this kind of structure of threes, um, which is kind of everywhere in mathematics, obviously, and um, in Bach um, canons, which rise in endless ways, and how that relates to the impossible triangle, the Penrose triangle. Um, and then, yeah, exactly, this alternative spatiality kind of opened up where it actually came from just imagining and reading about kind of satellite links between uh, England and Australia and, and undersea cable links. And I was thinking about what kind of exists above and below the, the line on the map, which doesn't exist because there is no straight line between the two countries. Um, and so then... Um, that led me to the Y, which is if you put a, a dot in the middle of the triangle, um, you have a Y shape, literally. And W-Y-E is the kind of phonetic way of saying Y, the letter Y. And then Y came into a whole lot of things in relation to colonialism, such as the Y level in engineering, um, the, the Y junction in railroads. And this all led me to another symbol, which has been really important, which is the symbol of three hairs, which is quite a mysterious symbol, which can be seen all over different religions in, in their iconography, in Chinese Buddhism, in Judaism, in uh, uh, medieval Christianity. And it's this very beautiful drawing of, of three hairs. And it's a kind of visual trick where each of the three hairs has two ears, which join in the middle, but only there are only three ears there. So because of the way it's drawn, they each have their own set of ears, but those are shared. And that kind of became the real framework for the narrative where each of these three characters are chasing after each other in this impossible triangle, and they exist separately, but they need each other for their story or for their narrative to be completed, which is very much what you have here with Lethbridge, Hare, and Fair. Um, 
and that's the kind of story that I wanted to tell um, and, and to bring in the perspectives of um, three characters. And I was very clear in kind of reading that I wanted it to be a story about kind of colonialism and my own place in relation to that legacy, which you cannot ignore as a white South African. Um, but I didn't want it to be the kind of um, the more oblique story of kind of white people coming from Europe and stealing land from black people, which happened in South Africa and happened here. Um, I wanted it somehow, and, and it has a lot to do with where I am in my own work and some of the things you mentioned with regards to my photography and that history and the relationship to, to thinking about my subjectivity in relation in, in making representations. Um, so I very consciously wanted to kind of get inside the colonial mindset um, and kind of channel it, um, which was it's a scary thing to do if you're coming from my position. It was, for me, a more honest way of engaging with that history. So I wanted to get inside and in some ways explode the colonial mindset from within. So Lethbridge, um, who is an 1820 settler, um, he's a fictional character, but I've uh, made him into an 1820 settler. The 1820 settlers were a group of English working class people who were brought to South Africa in the 1820s and given land um, in exchange for coming to literally form a kind of human buffer between the black tribes of the Eastern Cape and and uh, and the Afrikaners who were pushing into the interior. So Lethbridge arrives with his kind of liberal English pretensions but um, and, and is very interested in the landscape and I at first, my instinct was to make him into a kind of typical European racist person, but then I realized that it was more interesting to me to kind of allow the viewer to identify with him, to make, uh, to, to really be sympathetic to where he's coming from. Um, but then in his language and the way he acts in the landscape, you get this kind of sense of the arrogance of assuming that the land is there for him to study and to discover. Um, then um, here, I'm moving through the characters a little bit slowly, but um, here uh, the South African um, is in some ways a quintessential um, South African male who loves the outdoors. He um, feels like he wants to dis disengage from the social problems in South Africa. He says you, you, you're kind of constantly faced with it, which you are at every traffic light in South Africa. You have beggars, and um, he says every traffic light, every checkout counter, you're up against the cliff face of this, the coal face of this, this fraught reality and history. And he doesn't want to engage with that, so he takes a job as a lighthouse keeper and, um, and metal detects as a hobby. Um, and symbolically, really, by covering his ears and using this tool to kind of look underground, he is, um, you know, psychically kind of putting himself in the earth, in the landscape, as opposed to in relation to other humans. Um, and Feo, um, it was very um, counterintuitive for me to <laughs> write a character from the future because I'm not a fan of sci-fi or anything like that. But it just, um, yeah, it just came this the sense that it needed these three temporalities. And and Feo is a psychoanthropologist, a discipline I kind of invented, but very much based on a kind of critique of 20th century anthropology. Um, and, and, and writing fair like this and writing fair as a potentially disembodied person was for me really a, a foil, a kind of way of reflecting on contemporary tools of study and imagining how a future person might have the arrogance of, develop, of, of development of having transcended the needs of the body, but that in through this experience of deep enactment where they actually um, experience the body memories of one of the other characters here, they kind of get seduced by, by embodiment and, and this, um, yeah, very much a sense of failure in each of the three characters and the, and the failure of the tools that they are using to, to seek and look in the landscape. And then you have this kind of central motif of divining or dousing. So each of the characters is, is divining in their own way and using instruments that are kind of synchronous to their era. So you have the, the dousing stick, the metal detector, and then this discipline or process of kind of deep enacting in that Feo does as the, the psychoanthropologist. Um, I think that probably leads to a, a discussion about your interest in cultural anthropology. And um, I think you've said in the past that 
representation is always associated with an anthropological project and maybe how in the process of making your own photographs that led you to self-reflexively sort of interrogate your own approach and maybe how that led to the interest in cultural anthropology as a discipline and how it's treated in the film. Yeah, um, so when I was studying, I had a lot of friends who were studying anthropology and um, and subsequently to studying as well. Um, uh, actually worked with an anthropologist, I'm just remembering now, um, we got access to the prison um, together in Defeat Hooker and we're kind of working parallel to each other. But I was very kind of um, surrounded, felt surrounded by anthropologists and um, they are kind of very much influenced in South Africa by the kind of Chicago School of Anthropology where, um, which is, you know, very a very strong reaction to the kind of racist 19th century history of anthropology. And um, in, in and and I have to admit that my um, understanding of anthropology is incredibly rudimentary, but I was really struck by this kind of reaction to that and how immersion, the really the spending time with one's subjects, the living with one's subjects, the, the, the hanging out and, and deep hanging out is an actual term that's used kind of somewhat ironically. But um, and when, when my anthropology friends mentioned that, I was, it's always stuck with me, deep hanging out and what that means. And the anthropologists were often very critical of photographers, you know, who might kind of jump into a situation photographing people who are very different backgrounds or might be, um, you know, power dynamics. Uh, anthropologists are incredibly aware of that and they use deep hanging out and extreme immersion as a way of kind of um as a primary way of getting across you know those those divisions and um i was also struck by kind of how the extreme of that was was this kind of almost obsessive navel gazing where so much of the theory of anthropology was about the self and interrogating the, su the subjective relationship of the of the anthropologist to their subject and felt that to me like that could often kind of shut them down to the point where they were so much talking about their own process that they kind of forgot about what was happening in the world around them and um, I, I felt in some ways my photography which was definitely influenced by by, by this immersion um, of getting to know people. It was also a kind of a reaction to that, that I wanted to be brave enough to make representations. I kind of, for all that I've kind of queried um, what I've done in the past photographically, which a whole body of work, Retinal Shift, was really about kind of breaking it down literally and smashing photographs and obscuring them. And so it's kind of been an obsession the last couple of years. I still really believe in making representations. I feel like it's a it's a valuable thing to do and, um, and I hope to continue doing it. And I don't see actually making a fictional film as um, very different from that. It feels... Um, yeah, like a like a kind of logical step in in my attempts to understand the world, which is what all my work's really about. Now, Michaela, forgive me, I'm going to quote you, <laughs> um, but I just think this passage does a lot to explain how Mikhail um, made the leap from documentary photography to fiction in this process of kind of um, yeah extending his practice by reflecting on, on what representation means and the challenges of it. Um, he says, My initial instincts as a documentary photographer slowly became more and more at odds with my attempts to understand the image-making process and the relationship between my internal psychological world and the subjects of my images. The aim is not to discredit my instincts at the time, which were to use my photographic work as a tool to bridge the sheer social, racial, racial and economic divisions of the society in which, into which I had been born. And yet I find it vitally important now to acknowledge some of the deeper motivations for doing this work. I have come to believe that most photographers are completely blind to the extent to which they seek out, through making images, external manifestations of their own internal conflicts. Um, and I think I think what we have in why is Mikhail's sort of ventriloquizing uh, this conflict through the various voices of the three characters, um, and 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 self-reflexively working through his own you know um, sense of the the biases and distortions that he brings to bear um, on his subjects. Would that would that be fair? Absolutely, and um, 
I think, um, yeah, that comes through in, in, in my relationship to each of these three characters. And, and a lot also, um, th there's a key event in the films that kind of, they all turn around. It's the most kind of realis realistic moment um, in every sense in that the music and the sound becomes focused in on, on the realism of the moment when Hare, um, through his metal detector, finds um, it starts beeping like crazy. Um, he starts digging at the spot. A homeless man called Hermanus walks past um, and uh, Hare's kind of, when when he hears Hermanus approaching him, he um, he thinks that he's begging or feels slightly threatened and says, no, sorry, I can't help you today. Um, and then he realizes that Hermanus is actually interested in what he's doing. And Hermanus then helps him dig, but he insists that he digs himself. So this all the kind of politics around race and labor in South Africa, which is incredibly fraught. They pull up eventually after hours of digging, they pull out this chest, which we know because we've seen is actually the chest that Lethbridge buried with a letter. He thought he was writing this letter and sending it to um, London, but in his madness, he buries it instead. Um, but when, um, yeah, when Hermanus and Hare um, bring it to the surface, um, the, the, yeah, all the little moments around that are very familiar moments that I was kind of trying to, to write and reflect on by exaggerating a little bit through assuming the begging and the kind of awkwardness of hair offering to pay Hermanus. It's all kind of things that are very much part of my life and um, you know, part of my thinking about how to be in this world. <laughs> and Hermanus um, also I think is, is a, a very good example that speaks to, to, what, to your question. Um, Hermanus is a fictional character in the film, but he's also a real person. Called, he's played by a real person called Hermanus van Veek, who I met over 10 years ago. I photographed him uh, on a building site. He, after I'd finished the prison photographs, I did a follow-up body of work which was focused on ex-prisoners, um, which was really my attempt to kind of bring the two worlds of inside and outside together. Society does such a great job as Foucault showing us of separating out the two worlds of incarceration and the other side. And for me, I didn't want to just photograph and fetishize prisons. I wanted to kind of show that it's part of our world and people move in and out of it. Um, so I was photographing on a building site and um, I was actually kind of wandering around looking for people who may be ex-prisoners. And this booming voice said to me, what are you doing? <laughs> and it was Hermanus, and he was like, take a picture of me, and I was like, okay. <laughs> and, and it was absolutely kind of perfect for the project, because he was very interested in what I was doing. Um, I took a photograph that became quite a striking, well-known photograph, and I've known him ever since. I keep in touch with him over these 10 years, and he was very happy to come act in this film. So actually, Nina writes very beautifully in, in the essay about how he kind of navigates this journey from my documentary world into the fictional world. But just in thinking about that incident, which the whole film kind of revolves around, um, it was very personal, this, this man, this homeless man kind of coming up to, to here and, and being interested in what he was doing and how that was unexpected. And as you say, that's really sort of the, that incident is the crux of the film in terms of um, looking at the asymmetries um, in the relations of power that that continue to this day and which are such a legacy of, of colonialism and then apartheid. Um, when we were speaking, when I was writing the text and, and we were speaking often about the project, um, the sort of contemporary resonances of this idea of kind of um, colonial injustice and the legacies and the guilt um, were very much in the forefront of your mind um, because the the hashtag roads must fall um, movement was was happening in South Africa so it was very present it was in the news every day I wonder if you could just reflect a little on um, on on why um, it had such a resonance for you and um, how it t ties to the project I guess yeah so um 
I don't know how many people follow South African news, but it is a very um, particularly fraught moment in South Africa at the moment, in, in a way that I think is very good. It um, feels like issues are coming to the surface that really needed to come to the surface a long time ago, and obviously it's over 20 years since democracy now, and there's massive um, student protests around. It started out around, very symbolically, a statue of Cecil John Rhodes on the University of Cape Town, and... Um, I think very rightly, a lot of black students felt like this was not the right kind of um, person to to memorialize so prominently, and um, that it, it was symbolically about that, but it has become about so much more about access to free education, access to resources and education um, but it's it 's very contested and there 's a huge amount of kind of differing opinions in South Africa at the moment on social media um, our government is um, a little bit crazy. <laughs> and so it's very easy to criticize the government as everybody does. Um, but I think the deeper issues are really interesting and, and people are beginning to speak up in a way and say, you know, in very obvious terms, not enough has changed. Um, and there are no kind of holy cows anymore of, of the liberation struggle and, and that um, absolutely has to happen. And within all of that, um, it's very interesting to observe on social media how white people um, kind of engage with that and... Uh, I think, I can't remember who it was, but some, some critic or somebody said, you know, what white people should really do is now is just shut up. <laughs> and, 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 you know, because, and, and allow people to say, even when people come out with quite extreme views, you know, it's, um, these things have to come out. And so while a lot of people are very pessimistic about what's happening in South Africa right now, I'm very, I think it's important and great. And um, I, I'm not very good at shutting up. So, um, I've, I've made a film, but it's, it's, uh, it's kind of, it feels kind of parallel to that. Um, and it's very important for me to make myself vulnerable in my work, um, which I think I've done more and more. And to, in some ways, um, confess to who I am. I did that in retinal shift um, in terms of my relationship to photography. And um, one of the things um, I, I, uh, I think unfairly get criticized for is for being a kind of white male photographer who, um, you know, photographs and takes advantage of poor black subjects. Um, I, I think it's very different and I think it's a much more reciprocal relationship and I try very hard to engage with people in a meaningful way um, for both them and me. And I also think that, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the world around me. I, 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 the fact that I happen to photograph black people or white people, it's, it's what's in front of me. So I don't buy into the criticism, but it's also really nice for me to make a work which is about my own whiteness um, and and in hopefully a very vulnerable way kind of looks at the English, even the English, uh, the English are not my ancestors. It's, um, I feel as an English-speaking South African that that English colonial legacy is really my legacy um, and I think it's important to engage with that. Um, and um, yeah, I think the, the Australian perspective of thinking about something which is more focused on the future was... Um, was also kind of an interesting thing to do because in imagining uh, a, a post-race, post-gender, um, potentially post-body um, um, character, my girlfriend, who Maria, who was a huge part of this project, kept on telling me that that in itself was a white male fantasy that <laughs> a woman or a person, a black person would never have. So it's very much a, a kind of open thing and I really hope that, um, that uh, the audience will bring their own uh, kind of interpretations and prejudices and um, uh, kind of guilt and kind of, uh, yeah, their own feelings because uh, it might seem wonderful here, here in Sydney, but there's a lot that you guys also haven't dealt with, and so hopefully, hopefully, um, this work will also kind of, um, kind of, kind of poke at some of that um, uh, in relation to a lot of things uh, in terms of your history and also, um, yeah, the, your relationship to people who try and come here. How are we doing for time? Okay, and okay. Um, I thought we should 
you know, the landscape is such an important part of this film and how the different characters um, connect to it, their physical and spiritual relationship to the landscape is so critical that I thought we should just look at that for a moment. Um, you have the James Lethbridge, the, the historical character, the 1820 settler, who arrives anticipating this sort of garden colony, you know, an unspoilt paradise populated by noble savages. Um, and he encounters this landscape that is very resistant to being read um, in the terms he's trying to read it. Uh, and instead, you know, it's, it's aberrant, it's um, grosser frequencies, he talks about the vindictive land, um, and it suggests this kind of state of inversion, this anti-pastoral. Um, and you've spoken before about your interest in um, J.M. Kutzia's comment or, the, or his thoughts in um, white writing or the introduction to white writing um, on how... Uh, the colonial imagination um, didn't have the language to deal with the landscape it had encountered and that actually the first thing to do was to develop that language before they could kind of fully engage and understand. Um, I was wondering if you could just talk about your treatment of landscape within the film and... Yeah, so that um, that book of essays, White Rating, became a, uh, an important way to kind of link that other side of the triangle, which had been kind of um, as a counterpoint to my um, kind of experience of South African projections onto the Australian landscape and this reading of Hughes's description of the projections of the English onto the Australian landscape. That link between uh, England and South Africa obviously became very important. Um, of course, Kutsia is an interesting figure in terms of this triangle um, and, and of, of course, a, a, a brilliant writer who has... Um, in his fictional works, um, you know, also kind of poked a lot to the surface in South Africa and in both good ways and ways that I think uh, I and other people are critical of. But um, White Writing is, is, is a brilliant book of essays and um, the, um, yeah, he speaks of how when, when the English colonials went to America, the, um, the landscape there, the landscape of the New West kind of fitted in with romantic painting. It was, there were tall mountains for the foregrounds and the sides and there was deep valleys and big skies and the kind of picturesque principles that were kind of driving the colonial project as it kind of expanded um, fitted and there, there's a kind of thriving tradition of, um, of, of romantic painting in America but how once the kind of settlers in South Africa moved beyond the, the Western Cape, Cape Town which does have something of that picturesque quality they moved into a very flat uh, flat landscape and um, and 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 he speaks about how kind of in order to really own a land you need to kind of represent it and so much of colonial representations both in writing and poetry um, were an attempt to do that but there was this failure and there was this failure to also adequately represent the, the body's relationship to the land because um, in order to take ownership of the land you have to be kind of working in it, you have to be productive um, so they wanted to kind of represent the settlers as productive people who were owning the land by working in it, but also they didn't want to to represent white people as doing manual labor. So there's this kind of absolute paradox of you don't want to let the people who actually own the land to be seen working in it, but in reality they are working in it and we don't want white people to doing, be doing manual labour. So he really gets into that and that for me was um, really interesting to think about and I haven't delved into it nearly as deeply but uh, I know with Australian landscape painting that for many, many years it was painted still as if it was Europe. So um, it's, and it took about 100 years before the light here was really grasped. Um, but um, at one point, um, Feyer speaks about kind of the landscape and, and how um, Feyer's inside Hare's body at this point, deep enacting, and how the landscape needs to be kept at a distance, as if the, there's a kind of separation between what falls on the retina and the bodily experience and the, and the kind of mental and psychological kind of uh, interpretation of the landscape. And that's really the disconnect between body and landscape that, that is at, heart, at the heart of all three films. Maybe we should stop there, Nina, because I'm sure... Is this working now? Can, 
uh, we should ask some questions. I have some questions. Thanks, Dan. Uh, what I did, I, I failed to introduce uh, Mikhail, as Nina very politely pointed out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I, I did want to say uh, how Brian and I came to connect with him and then we'll ask some questions. Nowadays you can uh, go to the Google and find out he's shown at MoMA, he's a, a, a young artist in his early 30s now and uh, the Tate, as Simon and Catriona know and other people here, Andrew and Kathy, visited him in South Africa visited his studio. I mean, they have big choices as to where to go. And uh, th that says a lot, just symbolically, together with the project. Defir Hooker means the four corners, four corners. My Afrikaans has gone to the dogs, I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, uh, the Four Corners, and that was shown at MoMA, uh, and, you know, he's, he's gone further than anybody could possibly have expected from a young man based in Johannesburg of his uh, age. How Brown and I came uh, together with the work uh, was we were in Basel uh, at the art fair, which we don't always go to, but in this case we did in 2005. And we were actually looking for a body of work to acquire for our own collection by David Goldblatt. And we went to the Goodman Gallery, and there was a wonderful body of work by David Goldblatt, uh, just what we had sort of imagined or thought that we might want. And it, it was a series, uh, Rod, you will relate to this, of, of, of black workers who were lining up, and Neil, I think you too, in a, a, a bus queue, a sort of at two in the morning in order to get to work by seven or 7.30 to work in white households. So they started their day at two in the morning. Uh, the journey took that amount of time and eventually they got to work at 7.30. And of course for their employers, that was the beginning of the day. Meanwhile, they'd been on the road for five hours already. Uh, in most cases. So that was the body of work we wanted and we went specifically really for Goldblatt. Turned out that the work wasn't additioned and it was quite expensive. And we felt, and particularly me, that why, you know, how can you spend so much money on a work that has no numbered edition on it? It felt like, you know, maybe there'd be 10,000 of them and then it wouldn't be... You know, it, 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 it didn't feel like it fitted within art world protocols. And right next to David Goldberg's work was, a uh, Goldblatt's work was uh, a work of uh, some prisoners in a prison in South Africa called Polesmoor Prison. Uh, prisoners, black prisoners in uh, orange uh, prison uniforms. And to cut a long story short, we started buying. Mikhail tells me, just in our uh, wonderful conversations we've been having, that the uh, Goodman Gallery, and Neil uh, is here representing, I'll introduce him properly uh, uh, at the time of the opening, but that, uh, you know, they kept calling, saying, have you got any more of these? Have you got any more of these? Because they were being sold like hotcakes, the proverbial hotcakes. So he was, he, that was his master's project. Not masters. You don't have a master. So what? <laughs> but it, it was his undergraduate project, even better. So that's how we came to the work and how we got to know Mikhail uh, and the relationship developed in the way that you've uh, heard described uh, and with Nina, of course, too. Um, the only other thing that I wanted to add before we've got time for about four or five questions is that, you know, if you're not South African, that scene that Nina and Mikhail uh, described as the core theme in the film, where the two men, black and white, are digging, uh, I don't know whether it would strike you, could possibly strike you in the way that it struck me and will strike Brown when he gets to see it, and Rod and anybody else here who's South African. Because nowhere in South Africa did you see a white man digging with a black man watching. I mean, it just, it, it wasn't a scene that anyone was familiar with. If someone was digging, he was black, and if someone was watching with his feet up and swearing and shouting at the digger, he was white. And so because it's inverted at times in this film, 
for anybody who's lived that experience, it comes as the new South Africa, in a way it comes as a shock. Uh, and I think it's central to the film for a number of different ways, but certainly there's so many layers in this, these three films that interlock as one, that that is a, a layer uh, at that moment that is particularly fraught for South Africans. Those that lived under apartheid, those that left early, those that are leaving now, that scene will leap out at all these people in a way that it'll leap out, I think, for everybody, but more so for those of us who were born there. So please um, feel free, there are, I don't know, it's hard, the, the film is 45 minutes, you couldn't possibly have seen it yet. So try and see if you can come up with questions based on the talk rather than on seeing the film. Has anyone seen the film? Uh, 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 some part of it. Okay, the staff, yeah, I've seen quite a few bits of it. So, um, what? Come on. It's your turn now. You have to work. Katrina, uh, Katrina, no. No, come on, someone. Okay, I'll just make a comment. T talk loudly, though. I'm, no. I'm going back to my history school, and I might be wrong, but I remember, I might have been the first uh, prisoner ship, convict ship coming to Australia. It was kicked out of the Cape. They went to the Cape and were rejected. Yeah, um, I know they stopped at the Cape. I'm not sure if they were kicked out, but I do know. Uh, yeah, and I do know that there was a plan at some stage of the English occupation of the Cape to to turn the Cape into a penal colony. So, ab absolutely, and and in Hughes's book, The Fatal Shore, that kind of journey and everything that it entailed and the unbelievable conditions is spoken of. So, um, absolutely, and and also in South Africa, as I dealt with um, in in a number of projects, the kind of history of incarceration is as kind of present as, well, I don't actually know how present it is here, but um, uh, Defeat Hooker, the project I did on, on incarceration, was really kind of kicked off by um, thinking about living in a country where so many of our political leaders have spent time in prison. reminded me we record the questions as well because we podcast, so you do need to talk through the mic. Uh, here's a question. Cal, I'm just wondering, um, a lot's happened in 20 years in South Africa. A lot of the things you're talking about are deep, dark beginnings and origins of where we are and how we feel about the country and, and its history. How is what has happened in the last 20 years impinged on any of the work that you're doing at the moment? And is there something that's happening there that um, maybe the subject of, of influence what you're doing at the moment will be the subject of something that you, you do in the future? Good question. <laughs> Jeff um, used my nickname because he's a, a very old and dear family friend. So, um, uh, interesting because part of my wish to look in historical terms pre-apartheid um, at English colonialism um, in some ways is a reaction to how heavy apartheid weighs on on our kind of discourse in South Africa and apartheid of course is a very easy thing to to engage with because it was so clearly evil it was you know kind of legislated um, uh, legislated racism, um, legislated prejudice. Um, so I'm very interested in how a lot of the seeds of that were, were sown by the English colonial project and then really kind of were made worse by the Anglo-Boer War um, of 1899 um, and how apartheid really needs to be seen in that context, which is not answering your question. <laughs> um, and and I, I don't know, it's interesting. Like I... 
all this history kind of does weigh heavy and I think it speaks so strongly of where we are 20 years after apartheid with people protesting about racism, about access to universities, <coughs> about statues, you know, um, that's where we are. That, that history is weighing so heavily and I, I just think to ignore it for me would be... Um, yeah, it's it's just what's in front of me. Um, I really do hope. I hope that both my work will change and and find other interests. Um, I was saying to somebody earlier how I like I really like every project that I do, kind of to not know what I'm doing. Working with film, fictional film for the first time, writing scripts. Um, uh, you know, I need a lot of help from people, and um, and uh, I was kind of out on a limb. So I hope my work will. The next project, I'll be trying something different completely, and 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 I think the situation in South Africa will change, and and will allow space um, for 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 me to pursue different interests, um, but. Uh, the history weighs heavy. I don't know if that does answer your question. I think it's... Uh, well, I, I, and what we actually failed to talk about um, was a really important precedent to why, which is um, an earlier film work by Mikhail called Moses and Griffiths, uh, which was made in 2013 as part of the, the larger retinal shift body of work that he's already addressed. Um, but Moses and Griffiths was the first sort of multi-channel film installation that Mikhail had made and you know I, th I think what's obviously happening with the the hashtag roads must fall movement is the idea that you know until fairly recently there has been one singular accepted way of historicizing South Africa and there is now a debate taking place about the articulation of public space and monuments and um you know, whether there should be monuments that recognise the trauma of those who've been colonised or segregated and that... And what Mikhail did in um, Moses and Griffiths, which sort of, I think, you know... Uh, I think Mikhail had been thinking for a long time about the instability of history and the idea of multiple histories and, um, and multiple histories happening simultaneously. And Moses and Griffiths is um, essentially a filmic portrait of two museum docents, one who works at the Observatory Museum uh, in Port Elizabeth, is that right? Sorry, uh, Grahamstown. And, um, and the other at the 1820 Settlers Museum. Um, and he asked both these museum docents to give their sort of institutional tour of the spaces. Um, but then he filmed them again, giving a kind of personal account of the town and, you know, their own personal memories. And so he juxtaposes uh, the, uh, the official historical record with the kind of personal and where, where there are slippages and, and differences. And um, so I think that idea of the, the instability of history and multiple histories taking place at the one time is something that's very much kind of... Which I think um, very much comes from a sense of the instability of my own kind of foundations, um, you know, both in South Africa and just in relation to my kind of my family history. And um, uh, I think I'm finding a way of expressing that that in the work. And uh, also to get back to what Jeff asked, um, I think that. I always say I'm part of a funny generation because I was born in 1981, experienced nine years of life as a child before Mandela was released, um, and um, so lived through apartheid a little bit, but didn't wasn't an adult during apartheid, so wasn't able to make adult decisions. And so I don't feel a part of um, the kind of generation above me who made whatever decisions they made in relation to that very stark system. And I don't feel a part of the younger generation who have gone to um, schools where there's much more mixed between races um, and um, who in many ways don't see race in, in, in as, as much as, as I do. Um, and um, it's a funny kind of in-between unstable place to be and I think that is reflected in the work and the, the, the attempt to kind of make sense of, of history. We've got room for one more question. Wait, Neil, and we'll just get Sophie will give you the... Uh, that's not so easy to get 
Um, I think it's quite interesting, uh, Mikhail, that from the viewpoint of somebody who's now worked and watched your career with you for 11 years, to speak about how, in fact, being the person behind the lens is something like being Feo in this film. And that actually the whole trajectory is a kind of allegoric, allegorical reference to what you have done. And um, not because I want to take issue with what you said at all, Nina, but I don't think that Mikhail actually ever really was just a documentary photographer. There was a conceptual approach to why the subject should be there and what it meant um, in the South Africa of today to actually be taking photographs inside a maximum security prison and to have to deep immerse yourself, have to kind of live a deep enactment in order to make a proper sense of that. And then to extend it further and know that the only way to really make a solo exhibition that made good sense of it was to show those people on the outside. Um, so both in and out of prison, how much the separation from society and how much the racial divisions of that separation were implicit in it, um, characterized their lives and in some cases ended their lives because people got out of prison, refused to act for a gang when they were tattooed in prison and they would get murdered. Um, and here the allegory continues because I think the interesting thing is that Feo actually has quite a lot you may be on more of a self-discovery than, than, than you even were thinking about. But it is something about being disembodied behind a camera and not being visible and having this voice and having the visual implications become more important to all of us. And I think that what it does really do is that it heightens both the similarities and the differences between South Africa's version of colonialism and Australia's. And it was very interesting to me to see it here for the first time in its entirety, it somehow feels both more Australian and more South African, depending on which voice you're listening to. So the really interesting thing, and I have to say thank you to Jean and to Nina, because without you, this would never have been extrapolated to the degree that it has. And the Goodman Gallery feel very proud to be a part of the venture with you, but to all of you who've been on the team, and I hope that all of you are here, Give it the time to watch each of those voices take you through those same sets of footages. You have such different perspectives that you will honestly swear you have seen three different films. And yet they're exactly the same, they've just shifted in your perception. So, um, congratulations. Thank you. Now.